Welcome to Bottled Petrichor, a podcast dedicated to discussing key topics in Islamic history and thought. In addition to a short lecture at the start of most episodes, we ask our guest experts questions submitted by listeners and allow them to share their thoughts in a safe environment. Please visit our Twitter page for feedback and question submission forms. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy. I am honored today to have Professor Ahmed Al-Jallad. Hello, Professor. How are you? I'm well, and how about you? I'm doing well, Professor. Thank you for asking. I just wanted to say again that I'm super thrilled to have you on today because in addition to being this incredibly prolific academic, you also have this super engaging and interesting Twitter page, which you know a lot of people, including myself, have benefited from and have enjoyed a lot. And so I'm confident that, you know, of course, I'm going to enjoy this conversation. I'm confident that my, my audience will also appreciate the stuff that we talk about today as well. So kind of before we start, I, I wanted to ask, do you mind telling us a bit about yourself, your research, your interests, kind of what really got you interested in the study of you know, inscriptions? Uh, thank you. Yes, it's really uh, a pleasure to be here with you and to talk to you about these uh, subjects that interest me. Um, I, uh, I would consider myself an epigraphist and a linguist, um, but I'm interested in uh, inscriptions, uh, basically any kind of inscription that I can get my hands on. But uh, my research focuses on uh, ancient Arabian inscriptions, uh, that is inscriptions produced in the pre-Islamic period, and we'll talk about exactly what we mean by pre-Islamic later, uh, the pre-Islamic period in, um, in Arabia and adjacent areas, and in the alphabets, in both indigenous alphabets of Arabia and other uh, writing traditions that Arabians may have employed. And because I'm interested in everything that I can get out of these inscriptions, uh, I have to be much, sometimes much more than just, uh, well, I shouldn't say just, but much more than an epigraphist, someone interested in the, uh, uh, in the scientific study of these inscriptions themselves, their, the, the letter shapes and the language. But I have to, for example, sometimes go down uh, uh, and dabble in history and, and religious studies and social history and various other fields and um, and so I have very uh, broad interests and I would like to learn as much as I can about uh, everything to do um, with these artifacts understood thank you so much for that and I think I think we should get right into it and you had mentioned you know we we're going to talk a bit about pre-islamic Arabia but we could just start with that what is pre-islamic Arabia and how can we know about it uh, how did pre-modern scholars kind of approach the subject and what were some of their goals? Right. So uh, my interest began, um, my research interest began a long time ago in the um, study of the comparative grammar of the Semitic languages. I was interested uh, in how the Semitic languages evolved and developed over time. And one of the things that attracted me to the subject is that we were working in prehistory. When people compare, when, when scientists compare the grammars of Semitic languages, they're trying to understand something uh, something about the development of language before there was necessarily a writing tradition associated with it, before there was a written language. So that's prehistoric. And prehistory, or the distant past in that way, has always uh, appealed to me, the, um, the unknown. And I like to uh, imagine that we can um, learn something about uh, uh, such unknown things through careful study of evidence. Now, pre-Islam, uh, pre if we look at the, um, if we look at history as presented in Muslim sources, pre-Islam is the, uh, is really that final frontier, that that great unknown. Uh, most of what uh, 
most of what we had traditionally, um, knowledge we had about pre-Islamic Arabia from traditional sources, uh, came in the form of folklore, of storytelling, uh, people gathering accounts by um, individuals who were relating information based on previous generations, right? And we'll t talk a little bit about how those methods worked. Um, and so when I started studying uh, in, in more depth the Semitic languages, I, I came across what was probably the most poorly understood corpus of Semitic languages, and that was the uh, the epigraphic uh, material from ancient North and Central Arabia, and these were traditionally called ancient North Arabian. And what intrigued me about this material was that, well, it was so poorly understood, and this this was in the uh, mid, two, uh, you know, 2008, 2007, 2008, 2009, in this period, uh, there wasn't, we couldn't really say very much um, with confidence about the languages that these inscriptions inscribed, and even, and in fact, many of these alphabets were not uh, uh, completely deciphered. So even when we, uh, uh, so that just basically looked like a huge puzzle, just calling to be uh, uh, investigated and studied, and uh, and so it drew me. Uh, I was drawn to the field because of that, and at that time as well, there was no. There were no textbooks. There was no real uh, corpus available. So I was fortunate enough to build a relationship with Michael McDonald, uh, my uh, my dear friend and mentor and teacher in the subject, and uh, and study with him one on one uh, uh, what we could know about this epigraphic corpus. Now, what's intriguing about this material, these rock inscriptions, is that they come from pre-Islamic Arabia, that is, they're from the pure, they're, they're from the Arabian Peninsula and adjacent areas before the rise of Islam. But unlike the material that informed our uh, traditional narratives, our traditional um, uh, ideas about pre-Islamic Arabia, these texts were produced by inhabitants from that time period and from those places. They are eyewitnesses. They're eyewitness accounts, you can say. And so they're an entirely different kind of evidence. And once I became familiar with this kind of evidence and started working on it, I realized that, there were in, that we were in fact talking about two different kinds, two different pre-Islamic Arabias, two completely different timelines. Huh? You have the pre-Islamic Arabia that we know from Muslim sources, uh, which we call the Jahiliya, the Age of Ignorance. And that pre-Islamic Arabia concerns primarily the events and the the. Uh, political and cultural landscape of the peninsula in, in any real detail only a few centuries before the rise of Islam, whereas the pre-Islamic Arabia that we could know from inscriptions and from archaeology would st stretch back thousands of years, right, um, and all the way and extend all the way to the rise of Islam. And what was interesting is that the two pre-Islamic Arabias weren't always compatible. There were overlaps. But we often got a very different image of uh, pre-Islamic Arabia based on these documentary sources, eyewitnesses like the inscriptions, when we compare them to the accounts that um, that we find in Muslim sources. And so I, I uh, uh, and so there was this huge opportunity to learn about this place that, in the popular imagination, we feel like we knew so much about, right? The pre-Islamic Arabian ideas about pre-Islamic Arabia uh, serve a really big uh, – uh, serve as an interpretive or an exegetical tool in, um, uh, in Muslim literature. And so, uh, and so there's this idea that we know quite a bit about how things were in the Jahiliya, that you know, the Arabian Peninsula was uh, much more – rather isolated, that uh, the Arabians were barbaric and, uh, and, and lacking writing and, and, and all of these sort of topoi. Uh, and that um, 
well, that picture just looks completely different than what we see in the documentary sources where we where we have uh, civilizations, ancient civilizations going back to the uh, Bronze Age. Uh, we have writing, uh, copious amounts of writing all over the peninsula, extensive contacts with the uh, with the rest of the Near East. And indeed, uh, at least pre-Islamic South Arabia should properly be considered uh, one of the maybe the third pole of civilization. In the uh, in the ancient Near East, so uh, so that uh, working with those two timelines in mind, um, I became very interested in trying to uh, contribute to our writing of the history of pre-Islamic Arabia based on documentary sources, based on archaeology, epigraphy, and things that we and and, and material that we can scrutinize from uh, from that time period. So then that begs the question: What do we? Uh, what do we consider of the the sources that uh, that were compiled by Muslim scholars in the uh, in the Middle Ages? Right. I mean, they have a lot of accounts of pre-Islamic Arabia. What was that material? Uh, one of the uh, projects that I I sort of toy with, an idea that I toy with, is the uh, and hopefully I'll get to writing one day. I mean, I have some notes. Is a commentary of uh, Ibn al-Kalbi's uh, Kitab al-Asnam um, based on the uh, epigraphic and archaeological sources. So the Kitab al-Asnam is a book by uh, Ibn al-Kalbi, 9th century writer, on the religion of pre-Islamic Arabia, mm-hmm. on the different idols and the different uh, uh, religious practices, cultic practices associated with the idols before the rise of Islam. And the image we get there is so different than what we actually see in the epigraphic record. So, for example, Ibn Kelbi documents the worship of idols all across Arabia. At, for example, Dumat Jandal, he documents the worship of a deity called Wad. Uh, um, now, these are real deities, of course. Wad is found is obviously mentioned in the Quran, but uh, when we look at the epigraphic map, we see that Wad's worship was, in fact, all the way on the other side of the peninsula in South Arabia, and by the and it was the the chief deity of the Menaeans. And what's more, uh, the polytheism in South Arabia basically died off uh, in the fourth century, at least as a uh, uh, state-sponsored religion. And uh, there's no evidence uh, for what actually being worshipped by uh, uh, that far north or in in, uh, in Dumat al-Jandal. And it's not an argument from the absence of evidence, not at all, because you have thousands and thousands of texts at Dumat al-Jandal from the middle of the first millennium BCE until the rise of Islam. And in fact, there's no uh, worship of Wad there ever documented in the inscriptions. And in fact, the only religious information we have from Dumat al-Jandal in the 6th century is a Christian Arabic inscription. So quite a, quite a different image. So why then does do, do the sources, like Muslim sources of this sort, look so different than what we can see in the, uh, in the epigraphy and archaeology? And I think it's because we are, when we look at the way the Jahiliya was written, we're we're treating we're we're mistreating it, um, or I should say mistreat maybe so, but we are not um, uh, we're not understanding it for what it is. See, Muslim writers when they were collecting information about the Jahiliya, they were I think um, one could better compare them to, to to folklorists. They were interested in collecting folklore stories about uh, a mythical age, really, and their methodologies was or their methodology was just that. They would ask. Individuals who had, um, for example, some kind of uh, ancestral connection to the Arabian Peninsula about um, 
about uh, uh, you know the happenings of the Jahiliya and about the, the, you know things like polytheism. Of course, polytheism becomes a a, a sort of a, a, a topos in, uh, in the Jahiliya, and so. Uh, Ibn al-Kalbi is actually just asking informants, so do you tell me stories you know about the Jahiliya, tell me about these gods and, and or, or these practices. And he gathers all of these folktales into a book and presents them. Now, it would be a mistake for us to simply read that book and assume that we are dealing with documentary history the way we would if, for example, we excavated a temple in Arabia and read its inscriptions. They're not comparable. And so uh, the Ibn al-Kalbi is actually going around and, and collecting folklore in that way. And and they're, they're, when, when scholars become interested in things like this, uh, they become interested in folklore, they, that, that will, uh, in a way, contribute to the generation of stories. So there was no doubt that people of this time period knew that the Jahiliya was uh, a place of interest and that scholars were going around and, uh, and asking questions about it. So Arabians or people with some kind of ancestral tie to the Arabian Peninsula would certainly um, uh, be aware that they were going to be asked questions about it. And, you know, they'll respond with, uh, in, in ways that they think would be interesting or uh, entertaining to the people asking. We're not dealing with, um, uh, I, I, we're not dealing with any scholarly framework as we would think of it today. And uh, and I think the closest analog to this is, um, uh, for example, if you compare the kind of research done on 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 uh, you know supernatural things like uh, like Bigfoot. If you go out to the uh, Pacific Northwest, you have a lot of uh, Bigfoot research being done, which comes down to mostly asking people about Bigfoot encounters. Asking people about their experiences, or 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 asking about the experiences of their uh, of of people they know, or their or, or their ancestors, uh, asking people about bigger encounters, and asking people to to explain these stories within the local landscape, and uh, and that is the way that um, uh, that that basically sums up how we know about these kinds of folkloric creatures, and that is sort of what. Uh, pre-Islamic Arabia or the Jahiliya, let's say the pre-Islamic Arabia of medieval sources looks like, right? And um, and so the inscriptions and the archaeology available to us now give us, for the first time, the opportunity to step away from that mythological framework and and interrogate or or ask questions of of uh, of this period um, um, based on uh, evidence that we can be sure dates to the period in question, right? And we can see, this isn't the first time, you see, in uh, in history where such a thing was possible. This was always uh, more or less possible. And I think the, the characterization of Muslim scholarship on the Jahiliya as um, a scholarship of folklore or collections of folklore uh, is, is further supported by the fact that all the materials needed for a um, an epigraphy or or, uh, or an epi- a discipline, or an epigraphic science to have emerged in the Islamic period, um, all, all the materials, all the things needed were there. Uh, for example, the um, Al-Hamdani, uh, who was one of the great, uh, uh, let's say, polymaths of, uh, of, uh, of the Abbas period, he, he, he wrote um, a description of the Arabian Peninsula. And he was interested in pre-Islamic Arabia, of course. And in one of his, uh, one of the volumes of his Iqlil, he has a script chart. Okay, very interesting. A script chart which is which lists the ancient Musnad alphabet. Now, this was the alphabet used in pre-Islamic South Arabia, 
and he gives the shapes. And we we know this through copies, of course. So the shapes are a little bit altered, but we can still uh, make out what they originally were, and they're pretty accurate. So he gives the shapes of the Musnad letters, and then he gives the Arabic letter equivalents, and he's right. I mean, they understood, they still knew the script of the alphabets in ancient South Arabia in this period. And they had all of the inscriptions around them. They had all the monuments. They could see them. And what's fascinating is that there never, there was never an attempt to write the history of pre-Islamic Arabia um, informed by all of these monuments that were around them, which they could, if they made the effort, read, in fact. Um, it, sure, the language of these inscriptions was quite uh, different from, from classical Arabic, but uh, they had uh, – I mean, with the local dialects, even Himyaritic continued to be spoken in pockets in the period. And with knowledge of the alphabet, they would have certainly been able to, to decipher its language. And they would have been able to use these artifacts in the writing of pre-Islamic uh, Arabian history, but they didn't. And I think the way to understand why they didn't do that is because they were interested, they were more interested in the storytelling and the folkloric aspect of pre-Islamic Arabia than they were in actually trying to write some kind of positivist history based on evidence and documents. Um, uh, uh, in that period. So it, did, it took until the 19th century until these texts were, um, uh, let's say, uh, became, became until Europeans became aware of these texts, and then they were deciphered, um, and the voices of pre-Islamic Arabia were heard once again. So thank you so much for that. And so we're kind of talking about this stuff, and so it probably makes more sense to just ask, what was then the pre-Islamic Arabian landscape like in terms of language, religion, and empire? Uh, you know, what were the types of languages spoken? Were people generally bilingual? Um, and how mutually intelligible were the different languages in the region? And you know, did people have names for these different languages? Uh, very, very good questions. Yes. So when we look at um, when we look at uh, Muslim period sources, and this may have been the case even up to the seventh century, this is uh, and this is why such sources look this way. There were basically two main languages in Arabia. You had uh, Himyaritic, or the language of ancient South Arabia, uh, and then you had um, Arabic. The rest of Arabia was Arabic, and an Arabic that was very that was characterized by uh, the language, the performance register of the the pre-Islamic poems, right? Which uh, uh, I do think, by the way, are uh, authentic, are pre-Islamic, and we could talk about that later. But, uh, uh, but nevertheless, that that language there was being used all across the Arabian Peninsula, except for certain places where people spoke a kind of corrupted version of this language or some uh, or a version that isn't uh, to be relied upon. But when we push back in time, uh, what's fascinating is that we'll see that Arabia was uh, it could be characterized by hyperlinguistic diversity. Um, you uh, the earliest uh, texts uh, date to the they come from South Arabia um, and may date to the uh, well uh, beginning of the first millennium BCE or the end of the second millennium BCE. And uh, but uh, these texts are um, the alphabet itself. The entire concept of the alphabet actually comes from the north, so it had to make its way down to South Arabia sometime in the second millennium. And as it made its way down, it's reasonable to hypothesize that the script, these the south that this uh, South Arabian script, we think of the South Arabian script, we can simply call the Arabian alphabet or the South Semitic script, diffused all across the peninsula. And so we have uh, 
in the in central and north arabia basically every oasis every major oasis has its own uh writing tradition its own type of its own variant of the south semitic script this indigenous alphabet of arabia not related to the arabic script as we know it um so it has its own uh, uh, writing tradition, uh, its own language, and then the deserts as well between these places are filled with inscriptions. Uh, some of these inscriptions are produced in alphabets that have been deciphered and their language can be understood, and some of them are produced in inscriptions uh, in, in, in alphabets that are deciphered, but their language is completely under, uh, completely unintelligible, meaning that these inscriptions reflect languages that are no longer extant, that have gone extinct, that were spoken in Inner Arabia and have disappeared. And there just simply isn't enough texts to work out a decipherment of the language yet. And um, and there are other uh, cases where the scripts themselves are are not deciphered. So, for example, um, there are, uh, the, the ancient inscriptions of Oman. Many of these are painted, but some are carved on rock. The alphabet is not deciphered. We can't read the texts uh, at all. At all, there are some alphabets that are partially deciphered, meaning that we can read some texts and we can, but we can't read others. And so, uh, and that this situation, we don't know how old this situation is. When you're looking at a rock inscription um, carved in a mysterious alphabet that hasn't been deciphered, this text could come from 400 AD, 400 uh, uh, CE, or 400 AD, or it can come from 1000 BC. Right, it is impossible to know at this moment. Uh, you have to take it case by case basis, but it, it's impossible to know just by looking at the text. So we see this. We also see a lot of uh, linguistic diversity. What is missing, and what is absolutely fascinating when we look at all this uh, linguistic diversity throughout the throughout the Arabian Peninsula up into the sixth century, nothing that looks like, or nothing that is identical to. Let's say nothing that is identical to the language of the pre-Islamic poems. And, uh, and and of course, um, uh, nothing identical to what we see collected later um, and, and, and uh, standardized, well, we wouldn't want to say standardized, but um, sort of formalized as, uh, as classical Arabic has appeared in writing. There are lots of Arabic, lots of different dialects of Arabic, but nothing that looks so much like uh, uh, the language of the poems in classical Arabic yet, right, from all over the peninsula. And you have lots of tribal groups. So the main tribe that we think of the great tribes of Arabia um, that are mentioned in Islamic sources, for example, uh, uh, you know, Kinda and uh, uh, Mudar, and uh, you know, we can go on uh, Qahtan. These groups do exist, but they are rather late. They are not the most ancient tribal groups. They are, they are. If we look at the entire chronology of um, uh, of, uh, of ancient Arabia, they appear on the scene rather late the uh, there are many uh, tribal groups and uh, uh, that, that that are attested that we had no idea about except from the inscriptions um, what's also interesting is that you have tribal groups that are mentioned in the Bible um, as Arabian that also appear in the uh, inscriptions of Arabia so for example Massa or um, uh, Madian um, and you can go on. There, there are several groups. Well, Qaidar hasn't been attested yet. There's been a hypothesis, a hypothesis about uh, reading of a single inscription that may attest Qaidar, but it's unclear. But nevertheless, these groups are um, attested throughout North Arabia. Um, the inscriptions also attest uh, the existence and, and, and give us an insight into the uh, extinct Arabs, the lost Arabs, groups like Thamud and Ad, which were real groups, real tribal groups. Um, they actually are not, uh, Thamud is a bit more ancient. Ad seems to have thrived in Northern Arabia and the area of Jordan, their, their capital, uh, Iram, 
uh, or their their center, uh, maybe maybe their cultural center was Iram, um, which is modern day Wadi Ram. Uh, we know this from the inscriptions. Uh, uh, so we have access to the language of Ad, the language of Thamud. We know where they were chronologically in time and in place, um, uh, Northwest Arabia and, uh, and the Southern Levant. Um, and we know what kind of alphabets they used. Uh, so it's so so absolutely fascinating in that respect. Uh, and all of this, uh, we 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 can follow this all the way up to the uh, uh, up to the sixth century, indeed. And so we have a a beautiful. It's not complete, of course. A lot of holes, but um, there the from the early, let's say from the late early first millennium BCE until the sixth century, which was previously um, one could consider pre, uh, the in terms of a periodization prehistoric Arabia. Right, there weren't there weren't uh, examples of writing. Um, there there weren't there weren't uh, anything to make that period. You couldn't study that period through ri local writings. Um, in fact, today that is completely um, that, that that is completely in the light of history. Maybe a dim light of history because the inscriptions are not always clear. But there's a, but it's certainly it's certainly a historical period now. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you for that, Professor. And just before we move on to the next question, you had mentioned something about the authenticity of, of pre-Islamic poetry. I, I was wondering if you'd kind of talk more about that. And I I don't know really when skepticism emerged uh, about really the reliability uh, or the authenticity of pre-Islamic poetry, maybe Al-Taha uh, Hussein or something, but it, I was wondering if you kind of talk about it and tell us why there is a, a, a skepticism towards it and why you believe that it is actually authentic. Well, I think... Um, uh I think in this uh, this particular uh, question, thank you for the question. So it's it's a very it's one that's very interesting to me. I think we shouldn't um, uh, we should be very precise in how we talk about this material. And by uh, and when we use the term authentic, we don't mean we we can't mean that every syllable is faithfully transmitted uh, from whatever point of origin it had in pre-Islam. But at the same time, it wouldn't mean that if something wasn't faithfully transmitted, the entire uh, corpus should be thrown out. Now, there was skepticism, uh, yeah, Tal Hussein's famous skepticism on uh, the language of the pre-Islamic poems. He said they were incredibly uniform and don't reflect um, don't reflect uh, the diversity of tribal dialects that were, were that were in use in that time period. So that looked like they were later uh, forgeries. Uh, it's you know it's it's an interesting argument. The thing that the the thing that allows that opens this material up for um, uh, for that discussion is the fact that they're transmitted. I mean, we don't have these texts, we don't have copies of these texts from the pre-Islamic period. They're transmitted orally and collected later. Now, that's not necessarily a problem. I mean, that's the the same story of the Vedas, for example, that <laughs> that uh, were transmitted orally for centuries, right? Um, with the uh, but with the um, with the case of the pre-Islamic poems, I think what and of course, we're not speaking. We can't. We can't talk uh, about every single line, but we'll say the basic gist, the 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 core material of this of these poems. I think reflects a uh, uh, pre-Islamic uh, provenance because they are uh, they seem to reflect the same cultural background that we get in the pre-Islamic inscriptions. So the uh, stopping and weeping at graves, uh, the same kind of vocabulary, the, the cultic, the, the ritual mourning, all of this is almost exactly what we find in ritual mourning texts in, for example, Safiitic, uh, primarily in Safiitic, which is a corpus of ancient Arabian inscriptions that comes from the, Sy the, 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 the Syro-Jordanian basalt desert, right? 
almost entire, very very similar, very similar vocabulary, um, very similar cultural themes. Um, but what's more, uh, so there's a there, there are aspects of the uh, pre-Islamic poems that I think uh, if you that, that that if they were created, if they were forgeries at a later period in time, they wouldn't have been able to um, get these metaphors right. So. So there are certain metaphors used in the uh, in the pre-Islamic poems that uh, reveal a knowledge of uh, cultural practices in pre-Islamic Arabia that were not known in the seventh or eighth century. For example, at least as far as we know, they weren't known by later commentators who would have been accused of forging these things, um, and have only come to light in um, in modern times through. Um, Epigraphic and archaeological uh, research, and uh, for example, let's consider this uh, nice line by um, uh, by Labid, where he uh, is talking about the landscapes. He's describing how torrents lay bare uh, the marks of the tent and the landscapes, right? And this image is is compared to what he uses, what he calls zubur, usually translated as writing, and he calls it like the zubur, the pens of which renew its content, right? And 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 almost in, almost in all cases, these. Um, this image was thought to be the uh, one of um, pens with ink writing on uh, a document, right? Uh, uh, painting in, in, a, in a way. But that is not necessarily a good metaphor for the way torrents carve the landscape because they don't just go over it. They actually remove dirt and lay bare and open things up. But the term zubur, if we look at it from ancient South Arabia, zubur was a term for a, a for the day-to-day documents that uh, so, uh, uh, that they used for administration and for personal letters and things of this sort. These were sticks, um, uh, uh, small sticks or, or pieces of, of bark from palm trees. And they would um, write on these documents, their day-to-day uh, uh, things, and you wouldn't write on this with ink. In fact, you would use a sharp stylus and you would carve on these sticks when they were still wet. You would carve your text. So all of a sudden we see that metaphor takes on a completely different um, uh, light. It makes much more sense when we when we think about what Zubur was in its pre-Islamic South Arabian context, you see? And so things like that, little metaphors of that sort, um, I think uh, suggest that some lines, verses, or perhaps entire chunks of these texts uh, go back to a period where these metaphors were widely understood, and and that would have been the pre-Islamic period. Now, uh, you know, a, a lot of this material is, of course, traditional as well. So when we say uh, Labid's muallaqa. Um, we don't necessarily mean that you know all of this is the uh, original creation of the mind of Labid. Of course, this is traditional literature. So think of Labid as a bard. He's he's remixing and compiling uh, 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 material that was was widely known. It could have been even much more ancient than that period as well. So we have references to uh, uh, the supernatural fate, for example, which is all over the uh, uh, um, uh, all over the pre-Islamic inscriptions, especially in Safi and you get it in Levid with all very similar metaphors, a metaphor of fate shooting arrows or, 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 or at, the, at the living, at her victims, fate being, of course, uh, uh, death. Same metaphors seen in the pre-Islamic inscription. So all of this, I think, speaks to there being a cultural connection, a real one, between this, this corpus of material and, uh, and ancient Arabia. Now, that doesn't mean every single line it dates to that period, of course. When things are transmitted, they will each each bard or everyone who's transmitting it will change it a little bit, may insert a line, which is very easy to do with with poetry because you just have to basically keep the meter. Um, 
and the rhyme. So you might you might add material. You might, you could edit things slightly. So it's not to, it's not to say that the that every single word, every single uh, letter is uh, is 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 exactly as it was, but that in general. Very much like we might speak of uh, literature like uh, uh, Beowulf, which was transmitted as well, and had certainly gone, uh, been edited in the transmission process. Um, that, but in essence, it comes from the pre-Islamic period. Mm. Fascinating, fascinating. Thank you so much for that, Professor. Now, this next set of questions is something that we've been touching upon throughout this episode, but I think it's important to kind of ask them here again. How has the discovery of new inscriptions advanced our knowledge of pre-Islamic Arabia? the Qur'an, and early Islam. What about the Arabic language? Do you think that the history of Arabic and its development in the Islamic period will be rewritten based on these new inscriptions that we're finding? That's a very good question, and I think we need to, we need to uh, treat what Islamic, uh, what medieval Muslim scholars said about the history of Arabic in its context. So much like uh, the writing of the history of the Jahiliyyah, Right, the uh, these scholars were interested in folklore. They were interested in storytelling. They weren't necessarily interested in saying um, disprovable things about pre-Islamic Arabia by the study of artifacts and, and and what have you. So when it comes to the history of Arabic, it's the same way. The history of Arabic and the Arabic language itself becomes in the in in this period storytelling becomes an important symbol of authenticity and Arabness, and so stories are told about Arabic to position it in um, you know larger biblical history or um, uh, to to include certain tribal groups or certain. Um, uh, and certain regions into the fold of Arabness. So, for example, one of the most popular uh, explanations of Arabic, the origins of Arabic in the Islamic period, was that Arabic was first uh, spoken um, in South Arabia by a man named Yarub. Now, this story is important for including the Yemenis, uh, the ancient Yemenis, into the fold of Arabness. Now, it was very obvious uh, in this time and even earlier that the uh, Yemenis, South Arabians, were not speaking Arabic. They were speaking, uh, well, and by this period, a language we know very little about. We have only a few words and uh, and maybe one or two sentences preserved of something called Himyaritic. But when we look at the ancient inscriptions of Yemen, uh, we find four main languages that are as distinct from Arabic as, as Hebrew or Aramaic are, and some even more distance. For example, if we go to Hadramut and we see the ancient language of Hadramut based on its inscriptions, it is um, about as far away, for, it's as distant to, uh, from Arabic as, for example, Ethiopic. I mean, it's very, very, uh, very far. So there is a, a, so by using Arabic and positioning Arabic in certain places in history, you can weave people who haven't traditionally been under the umbrella of Arab into that uh, into that narrative and give them a, 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 a role to play and let them have a stake in this identity. Now you see that's not history writing as we would. That's not the kind of history, linguistic history that we would write today. So we don't from the Islamic period sources we don't have a history of Arabic. We have these kinds of folk tales and 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 uh, a mythological past for Arabic, which is fascinating and interesting in its own uh, right and should be studied uh, as well. But when it comes to a history of Arabic, that is, how did Arabic as a a terrestrial vernacular? develop over time that is something that was all that that that, that story started to be written really in um and we're talking about arabic in the pre-islamic period of course uh in the 19th century and the and the, the issue is is that in the 19th century uh, and even in the 20th century without recognizing 
the role that these inscriptions could play and without properly deciphering and understanding them, that the history of pre-Islamic of, of pre-Islamic Arabic was almost entirely speculative. It was based on trying to distill uh, the past from materials con- collected by the uh, Arab grammarians, and it was and by as well the um, uh, how do you say it the uh, 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 reconstructing historical linguistics on historical linguistic methods. This is the way people reconstruct. Uh, languages by the comparison of grammar, reconstruct extinct stages of a language by applying those methods to the modern dialects and applying them to the uh, to the material collected by the classical grammarians as well. But with the decipherment of many of these inscriptions, and especially in the corpus that I spend most of my time working on, I'm mostly busy with Safietic, a corpus of more than 40,000 texts now, uh, these texts date you know, uh, almost a thousand years before, at the at the earliest, perhaps uh, before the uh, the activity of the grammarians. So they they turned that period that we were interested as pre uh, previously interested in, which was previously prehistory. They make it history, and we could start to see the way the Arabic language looked in this period before the rise of Islam. And it gives you a completely different comparative dimension when it comes to interpreting things um, like, the, you know, we talked a little bit about the pre-Islamic Arabic poetry. Well, what do words mean in this in these poems? What, is, what, what exactly is Zubar referring to, for example? What is it? Uh, we can now bring a different um, uh, kind of interpretive lens uh, uh, to the matter. And uh, and then sometimes that works better than what um, classical commentaries gave us. Um, the same with trying to interpret some vocabulary in the Quran. The same with um, even trying to understand some of the grammar of the Quran, which is, if you take it on its own terms, uh, quite different from what becomes normative classical Arabic. And this is something that the grammarians recognized as well, that Quranic Arabic was its own thing. Well, we have uh, inscriptions now that – from the pre-Islamic period that lead right up into the uh, uh, into the the um, uh, uh, to the period of the uh, uh, of the Quran's um, uh, uh, the collection of the Quran and uh, well these texts can bear on on those types of philological questions. Uh, another thing comes, for example, with trying to understand uh, one one of the things that anyone looking closely at at Qurans will see is that the spellings, the orthography. Um, there are a lot of uh, what. From the from the point of view of normative classical Arabic pronunciation and normative classical Arabic um, uh, spelling, there are a lot of uh, anomalous spellings or rather odd or strange uh, ways to write words uh, that were uh, in many ways not fully understood. Um, by having the pre-Islamic inscriptions available, we can now understand the development of those kinds of spellings. Why, for example, Manat is written with a wow. Uh, why, for example, uh, Mi'a has an extra alif there. Why uh, and, and and so on. There are so many more examples we can bring uh, forth. And I think the interview you gave uh, you had with uh, uh, with Dr. Van Putten uh, is uh, we'll, you know we'll go into detail about that. And, and interested listeners can uh, can tune in there. But all of this material, all of this, all of the things that we now can understand. Um, and, that, and, and in some ways, our textbook uh, explanations, um, for example, when it comes to chronic spellings, were all made possible by people going out, doing surveys in the deserts, going out to collect this material. It was there. It's been there for thousands of years, for more than a thousand years in the Arabic material, thousands of years otherwise. But it took people to go out and actually care about that material and document it. Right and uh, and put the effort into trying to understand it, decipher it, and realizing this important, this invaluable 
uh, uh, resource and its importance for the um, uh, for later historical questions that we always we always took the answers we had for granted. Um, and in fact, it's always a much more complicated uh, situation. Thank you so much for that, Professor. And before we move on to these kind of rapid fire questions about the process, I was wondering if you would tell us a bit about your most important finds to date and maybe some of the adventures that you have when you're kind of going about looking for inscriptions? Uh, it's uh, uh, epigraphy is, uh, so epigraphy is the scientific study of, um, of uh, inscribed, uh, of inscriptions, inscribed objects, usually on, ro on rocks, um, but and especially in the Arabian context on rock. Now these texts are uh, the 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 corpus that I'm interested in is Safiric, and these texts are very very far away in the desert. Um, they're not a you can't just stroll out and uh, and have a little tour. Um, but like I said, they uh, their importance they they are our they are our first port of call for the writing of the history of pre-Islamic Arabia. They are the uh, indigenous voices, we can say, of the people who live there, of the pre-Islamic Arabians. And it's this material, really, that um, that we uh, that, that will allow us to flesh out the history of this period and allow us to uh, interpret later accounts. So uh, the fact that it's so far away um, and uh, and so difficult to access is uh, really not not consequential. I would do anything to get to this material, and so I started doing field work. Uh, I uh, I collaborate with my colleague Ali Al Manasir in, uh, in Jordan, uh, who uh, works with the Department of Antiquities, uh, and uh, all of all this field work is collaborative. You never go out by yourself, and uh, and uh, Ali Al Manasir is a, a fantastic colleague. He sorts out everything on the Jordanian end. He makes permits and uh, and and. and knows the landscape like no one else the epigraphic landscape so uh you know he can uh, he 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 is able to plan uh, what to do with the very short amount of time that we have um because you might be able to survey for about two weeks uh before you have more material than you know what to do with and uh and before exhaustion uh, completely takes over so surveying is a uh, is a wonderful uh wonderful thing that's it's a lifestyle in a way um so you keep doing it like i after this uh corona thing i found myself unable to go to the field but uh you know start reproducing sur when i go to visit national parks i end up finding myself surveying there collecting 19th century american inscriptions it's just uh, it becomes a, a sort of an addiction it's a wonderful uh, thing uh but the uh let's see so so uh usually when we go into jordan uh, we'll we will uh all meet up at the uh, at a camp near at the edge of the desert usually in in one of these towns Rueshid or safawi and uh then we head out early in the morning uh four or five in the morning uh before it gets too hot because of right out there while it might not seem that far we might just go uh, 10 miles or so into the desert 20 miles max the ride out there takes hours and hours sometimes four hours to reach where you want to survey because the landscape is so difficult uh, it is a basalt desert not a sand desert so it's rock uh mixed oftentimes with flint um it's hilly uh and these uh, rocks can often be sharp so you will lose tires and uh you can only drive a couple of miles an hour and you feel every bump right so if you have motion sickness this is absolutely not something you can do and you go out there very slow very difficult uh, way uh and uh, you, you to 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 a site that you might have chosen by looking at uh, satellite imagery and and talking to locals now the people that you go out with you have to cooperate with local uh 
with locals as well, local Bedouin, because they're the only people who actually know how to get around the desert. Um, there's no cell phone connection. When, and you can't drive wherever you want, so you can't look at a map and say, okay, we are this far from the highway and drive in a straight line. There are only certain ways that you can go. Uh, your car can get uh, stranded. Uh, you can break down. So it's very important to cooperate with a local who understands how to navigate in the desert. And once you get to, and, and and then once you get to your site, you get out and you you have your your equipment, you know, GIS, uh, your scales, photograph, uh, and 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 equipment to fo- to photograph. Uh, and sometimes you might have some uh, some very rudimentary uh, archaeological material uh, equipment as well. And uh, you will, uh, yeah, we walk around and uh, survey the to, in order to to capture everything because you can never know. Um, what's out there at any given site, you have to kind of move meter by meter, cover the landscape, cover any given site meter by meter, and make sure that you look at every single rock, right? So it's the the attention to detail is incredibly important. And uh, every every season promises a new discovery. Every season promises uh, uh, the addition of new information to uh, uh, to science and and some season and 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 the potential to completely change our understanding of really big questions. So uh, I can tell you a few stories from last season, uh, ones that are. Uh, 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 one that stand out to me now. We were, uh, we, uh, on, I think it was around the fourth or fifth day. We decided to survey a rather large wadi. Now the wadi was, uh, you just couldn't drive down it. The 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 cars wouldn't go. It was the the herbage was too thick. It was one that received a lot of water. And so even in June there was still a lot of herbage, bushes. You couldn't drive. So we 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 planned to walk about. Uh, 10 miles down this wadi, surveying everything on both sides, um, and meet our trucks on the other side, okay, our cars on the other side. These are these Nissan pickup trucks. So uh, we do that. We tell everyone, you know, I'm out there surveying with uh, – with, with some uh, with some students, and some of these are uh, you know young tough guys who uh, think they need a lot less water than they actually do, and they don't want to carry it. So I say, come on, we need to you know we have this our supplies. A few guys uh, didn't bring as much water as they should have, and, uh, <laughs> and and didn't wear as much clothing as they should because you know it's a great place to work on your tan, as you can imagine. Well, that's fine, uh, and we start surveying, and we're going. And my colleague uh, Ali Malasir is up at one at the top of a uh, a hill, a cliff, about maybe about 80, 100 feet above the wadi. Beautiful, uh, uh, beautiful place. And he makes a signal, come, you know, come join me. I found something. We go up there. We rush up there. And we see two, uh, three cleared out areas in the basalt. And the minute you see cleared out areas like this, this points towards uh, human uh, occupation, human activity, right? Um and one of these circles had a perimeter of inscriptions, which was interesting. The middle one had nothing. And then the final cleared out circle uh, that was overlooking the wadi at the edge of the cliff. When you got close, you could see that there were some sunken in stones and that there was a, basically a, a stone circle. That It was very clearly a burial. Okay, So we were dealing with this very interesting burial funerary installation nothing like it had ever been discovered before and then we started to look and read the inscriptions and indeed this was a burial of a woman and there were about 80 inscriptions memorializing her including one by her father and she's described simply by the title ain rasin which in later arabic means bride but i'm it's we we don't know what it means here it could something obviously it's a title for a important woman in this context and they're grieving for her and this was in this entire burial installation 
uh, was set up to memorialize her. Perhaps her body lay at the pit at the edge. There may have been a mourning circle and the inscription sort of memorials. Whatever the case was, nothing like it had ever been discovered. We had discovered a new burial installation, and the inscriptions were, were fascinating, many new words, many new grammatical features, but also insight into a new kind of um, burial custom a new kind of funerary custom that we just had no clue about. Incredibly exciting. Uh, spent about five hours documenting that um, as much as we could. Uh, we'll go back and uh, and 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 you know uh, fill in any holes we had before we prepare the publication. But it is a huge discovery, and you know the the excitement you feel of being able to see something that nobody had seen before in, in, in millennia, in more than a millennium, to read texts that nobody had read in more than a millennium. And to bring that to the scholarly community, is, is uh, there's nothing compared to it. And, uh, and one of the things, the reason why this was so beautifully preserved is that it seems that the modern Bedouin weren't using this wadi uh, very much. The way we knew that is, well, one, it's very difficult to access with your cars, and two, uh, there were there, there were no cigarette packaging anywhere. And cigarette packaging is a good way to know whether there have been people around uh, in recent times. <laughs> so, so, and it doesn't go anywhere; it's plastic. So, um, there was nothing like that. So, this was really uh, we we we've been the p- first people to come here in who knows how many centuries, and we continued down, walking this wadi, and you know, uh, maybe by mile six or seven or something. Uh, our, uh, some of the students started to really feel it. Uh, the water was uh, running out, uh, sunburned, feeling really tired, panicking. And, uh, you know, I was worried. I was like, well, maybe we have to carry these guys. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't bring enough water. Um, but we had enough water to give them anyway. It was fine. We, we, we kind of compensated for that. But, but they were really exhausted. Um, one guy was just absolutely spent and despaired at the idea of walking another three miles or so. And, uh, you know, while we're, we, we, we keep trugging along and, and, and surveying what we can, documenting what we can, and we found hundreds and hundreds of inscriptions in this wadi, we see at the top of a hill, um, to our left, and we're walking um, uh, a, a little cafe, huh? and arm waving. And it is one of it is our Bedouin driver, and he says, uh, "Well, he found a place to park that was closer and was just in time." And so we start, we go off track and start uh, walking towards him. And as we start going up that hill, we see a um, a path, an ancient path. But people had been walking up this hill in this way before, and so we start following that path. Okay, it takes us up the hill, and once we get to the top, we see where they park. They park next to an, a, a, a dry lake bed, huge lake bed that's dry. And we continue down that path. That path is, takes us to a small cairn, and that cairn is filled with inscriptions, uh, Safiotic inscriptions, but also Greek. And uh, I start photographing, but you know, my colleagues want to go back to the car. Of course, we, we need to hurry, so we're going to come back the next day. But I started photographing and, and documenting what I could here. We go back to the cars. We, we rest up. We have, we have a great time. We go back, and, and, and you know, it, was a, it was a fascinating day. It was a wonderful day. Huge discoveries. Now. Um, Months later, as I'm home, uh, uh, looking over and preparing the materials that we discovered for publication, I come to the photographs that I took at that site. And that site that we discovered by accident, simply because we had become too exhausted and, and by the luck of our Bedouin driver having um, found a, uh, a place to park, we found uh, those the inscriptions there provided our first evidence for the use of the term Arab as a term of self-identification among the nomads in, in, in the um, 
in the area. And you can think of how important this is. There are so many books now dedicated to to Arab identity and reconstructions of what that might have meant. And and there's so anyone who reads these books realizes there's so little evidence from the pre-Islamic period that helps us understand this. And then here we are, two new inscriptions that that, that make it absolutely clear that the general term that people living in this area, that the nomads of this area used for themselves was Arab. Absolutely fascinating. Huge discovery. And, uh, and you know, every year has stories like this. Um, uh, every year uh, comes with uh, surprises. Uh, and sometimes we don't even know what we discovered. So in 2018, so two years ago, uh, we were surveying and uh, we, we, we reached a – we were surveying um, a bit south where it was a bit sandy. And we reached a cairn that was just you know covered in sand. And sand is no, – nobody likes sand uh, because um, – well, uh, because it gets everywhere. And that's a, a joke for those on the internet. Um, but uh, the, uh, uh, the, the sand is um, – uh, tends to hit the, uh, uh, the stones and the rocks and it, it, it weather the inscriptions. So it's very difficult very difficult to uh, read texts that have been subjected to this weathering. And in the south, most inscriptions tend to be a bit shorter. The further south you go in the Safiitic uh, uh, area, the texts tend to be a little bit shorter, uh, less interesting, mostly names and drawings. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're surveying because you must collect everything, but we didn't have big hopes to discover great things here. And, you know, we're surveyors, we're not, we're not excavating, so we're documenting archaeological sites, but we're not excavating things necessarily. And I'm walking, and we're, we're at this site, and I put my foot down on one of these like sandy patches, and you know usually your your boot sinks a little bit, and my boot didn't sink. There was something hard there. I said, "What is this?" You know, I, I go down, I start digging up a little bit, and I pull out this beautiful rock, thirty centimeters by twenty centimeters, so quite large, filled with writing with a uh, with, with some uh, magical figures on it as well, a sun disk, absolutely gorgeous rock. I pull it out, I start reading it on the site. I read uh, uh, immediately. I see the the words "sabata uh, angum," which means in Safiric, seven stars, which must be a reference to Pleiades. And in the context of the inscription, it is indeed a reference to the Pleiades. This person had uh, uh, was talking about the heliacal rising of the Pleiades, and it's supposed to bring, you know, uh, uh, he wanted to pasture on herbage uh, that came after this period, but the herbage was bad, and so he suspected Nagat, that is the evil, the the uh, the, the evil eye. Mm-hmm. He suspected the evil eye, then he makes a prayer against the evil eye, against the the the, the uh, uh, this kind of envious eye fascinating text. Nothing like this had been seen. Of course, you're seeing how this is foreshadowing things that we get later. Um, and the text continued on. It was a bit strange. Uh, I didn't bother reading it. And I, I filed, and then, and then we left. I was excited. You know, I was very happy. And we left. And I forgot about the text because there had been so many other things that, uh, that, that we had discovered in the meantime. And I was busy with publishing those that I had forgotten about this text, you see. And, uh, and then because of the corona uh, stop, a stoppage. I was able to go back through photographs and go back through materials that we collected a long time ago. And I found, I, I saw this text again and I finished reading the inscription. And the inscription ended with an invocation to Dushare, uh, uh, that is Dushara Dusares, uh, the, uh, the chief god of the Nabataeans, who is called Min Rakmo, the one from Rakm, which is Petra. 
right? And you know that this is uh, one of the interpretations, a uh, very convincing one of the term Raqim in the Quran, that uh, you have a, a nice article by May Shadel on this subject. Uh, so um, so the Raqmo the, from the, Petra, uh, and then it continues, and to Alat, who was from Min, Ain Mim Noon. Now, what is Ain Mim Noon? We have no idea. Could It, it could be Amman. Of course, which is not very far away. It could be, uh, uh, but but there's another. But it could be some other local sanctuary that, that has the same uh, tri- uh, uh, three-letter uh, uh, root. It could be, um, or, or a three-letter sequence. It could be a skeleton. It could be uh, Oman. I mean, Oman is really too far, and there's no reason to think it's it's Oman as such. But rather, maybe another place named that locally. In any case, huge questions. So this one again, another beautiful inscription. Uh, so much new information, so much to discover, so much to learn. Um, I, I, I've sent it. I sent it in for uh, publication. Hopefully, it'll appear maybe the end of this year, early next year. Uh, so much to learn, and and it was discovered by stepping in, in the right place. Very easy to have surveyed the site because it was covered by sand, and just not to have stepped there. And it would have been discovered maybe later when archaeologists came back to the site. But um, but you know who knows when that's going to be. Right? Who knows? It could be a century from now. Um, but when we, but it was just from stepping in the wrong, in the right place, that this big discovery could have been made at this moment. Right? Absolutely riveting. Thank you so much for that. I think what's admirable, besides the fact that you're kind of braving this harsh temperature, these long, difficult commutes, is the fact that you're able to resist this impulse to just say, okay, we see this word and we know what this word means in this language or in this usage. And we can just apply that to this. And I think it's it's admirable that you're able to resist that that urge. Um, I'd like to move on to these rapid fire questions, and I think they're important. So we're just going to start with the first one: What compelled people to write? Who was the intended audience? Was it other people, divine figures, and generally, what was literacy like? Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, so this is the hot seat now, yeah. Uh, so I'll try to be very, uh, very, very quick in it. I think I think there's no one answer. I think it, the inscriptions tell us sometimes why people wrote. Uh, some inscriptions are writing to kinsmen that they sh- that the writer should be remembered and hoping that the kins that, that 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 their kin would read their inscription and repeat their prayer. They ask passerbys to uh, uh, read this writing. You might have you have a few texts, for example, very clearly in Safiyyadik that will say something like "Salam liman qara'a hakitaba." Right, very clear. So may the one who reads this writing uh, be secure. Uh, so, so you have that. You have some inscriptions that are uh, uh, that are invocations to deities. They begin ha, and then a divine name ha rutau. Oh rutau, this is an ancient god. Saidni min bits Help me against misfortune or evil this year. These types of invocations to the deities. Uh, you have other texts that are marking um, the buildings. Uh, who uh, building uh, uh, texts? For example, this this structure was built by so and so, or or um, uh, marking uh, territories. You have some texts that mark, you know, their funerary. So they are gravestones, and they're meant for to let people know who's buried here and that you could have a uh, uh, so people could of course uh, make prayers for the deceased of some or 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 for the for the surviving members uh, you have a very beautiful prayer in Safiyyadik um uh, uh that you get at in funerary inscriptions, they ask for the peace. Uh, for, for they, they they grieve for the peace. Uh, for the for, sorry, they grieve for the deceased. So wagama ala fulan, and then following that wa But those who remain alive despair. So it's the idea that the dead are at peace, but the living suffer. 
right? Um, so you have these uh, these types of things. Salam liman sa'ira. May the ones who remain alive, that is the family, the kin of the uh, of the deceased, may they remain secure. Many, many, many texts of this sort. So it's always about. Um, uh, I, I think uh, what you have to you have to answer that question based on the text itself, and we're talking about Safiyyidik. But I think overall, I think the basic idea of why people write is whether they realize it or not is to be remembered. Uh, anyone who inscribes their name. Uh, that name ultimately becomes a memorial. It will survive under normal circumstances. It will survive you. And so, uh, when I was in I was in Mammoth Cave, uh, 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 Kentucky, uh, uh, a month ago or so, and I'm reading inscriptions of individuals who left their names there in the 1830s and the 1840s. You know, and uh, and and they'll probably be there for uh, you know a thousand years not more. I mean, it's incredible. And you have, and with the date, and no, I don't know who these people are at all, but they left their mark and they're being remembered somehow, you see? So I think there's that impulse as well to uh, to somehow survive uh, one one's demise, to have one's memory survive their physical existence. Of course, in, in, for an individual, that can be as small as writing your name on a rock that people pass by, or if you have the resources, you might build yourself a pyramid. Same uh, Same motivation. Thank you for that, Professor. How do we know an inscription is actually going back to a particular date? Do we find inscriptions that were made several centuries later in an attempt to imitate already present inscriptions? And if so, how do we distinguish the dates between these two types of inscriptions? Uh, well, in ideal circumstances, you have inscriptions that can be dated in absolute terms. That means that the inscription, the author decided to, kindly enough, leave us a date. Uh, they tell us what year they wrote the inscription. Now, when you do that, we get an idea of what letter shapes looked like in a certain period. And so you can develop something called a, um, you know, we, we, you can have a paleographic chronology where you can say that letter shapes evolve in a certain way over time. What that means is that, uh, or certain spellings also develop in a, uh, over time at a, a, in a certain rate. So that can give you, even if you don't have a date, you can have an understanding of uh of when a text was produced. But sometimes we're just completely in the dark. So for example, Safiyidic uh, inscriptions have dates, uh, but we don't understand most of those dates. For example, you have a, a date um, like Sanat, uh, Sanat uh, Mat Adram. Well, who's Adram? Why they, the year Adram died? Well, we don't know who Adram is, so we have no <laughs> we have no idea exactly when this inscription was written. But we get a general sense that the Safiyidic inscriptions probably are before the fourth century uh, CE. So when we see a Safiyidic inscription, we are probably dealing with the time period before that, probably, again, very vague. There's no reason to think that they go beyond that date because of the uh, things that they mention. The, the, the events that they mention are actually um, – uh, they don't mention Christianity or anything to do with the events uh, of the 4th century and afterwards. So it seems like it's a reasonable, it's a reasonable hypothesis. Uh, uh, in other cases, um, so we have absolute dates, we have paleography, letter shapes. Uh, now, uh, the thing is, is that people have memory. So uh, people, when, when writing an inscription, people might choose, if we use the letter shape dating, to archaize. They want to write an inscription that looks old, right? Um, and that's not, uh, not necessarily uncommon. So the paleographic dating is not absolute. You might have inscriptions that look old that were written much later. And one of the best ways to kind of discover this, you can't always discover it, but one of the best ways to discover this is um, when you get idiosyncratic spellings or anachronistic spellings, right? So, uh, for example, um, 
you have uh, uh, these uh, these letters that um, the Prophet Muhammad sent to uh, various rulers, uh, telling them to convert to Islam, and uh, the letters themselves, um, the the actual artifacts. I think they their authenticity is uh, well, they're not authentic. And the reason way you can know that is although they try to use old looking letters, they get they get a lot of the shapes wrong, or they get the logic of the writing wrong. But also the spellings, the way that they the spellings are completely anachronistic. They're using spellings that were much too modern for the period. So there are a lot of these types of small things that um, people who want to give the effect of creating an ancient inscription. Um, aren't going to pay attention to that experts can can detect you see um and uh and as when it comes to forgeries i mean i think in the in the arabian context i have not seen any convincing forgeries yet um uh i i get forgeries all the time people send me forgeries uh, usually uh, they people will create forgeries to sell them so i usually get uh, safietic manuscripts or safietic uh, 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 writing on perishable materials and it's all uh, nonsense oftentimes i can see which academic article which script chart they chose to use to make the to make the uh, uh, the fake inscription so so far it's been uh, it's it's not uh, no, there hasn't been any convincing uh, forgeries in that way, uh, but but for much of for much of what we're doing, uh, the the chronology is in, is is in the air. We talk about pre-Islamic, but sometimes we our margin of error is many centuries, uh, and that will get better as more texts are discovered and as our understanding of the development of these different scripts improves. But at the current moment, uh, we deal with a lot of uncertainty when it comes to the chronological dimension. Thank you for that, Professor. So the final question is, what methodology is applied to determine the pronunciation of certain words in bilingual inscriptions? How important uh, are these inscriptions or how important have they been for the study of Arabic and other ancient Near Eastern languages? Well, it, it ties into what you said earlier, which is not to assume that whatever uh, meaning a word might have in a in a later Arabic dictionary holds true in the earlier periods, right? Um, it's the same thing with pronunciation. The way we pronounce Arabic today is very different than the way Sibue actually pronounced uh, described the pronunciation of Arabic. And even dealing with Sibue's pronunciation, so in the 8th century, we can't assume that that held for the 2nd century. So bilingual inscriptions are um, our only way, really, um, to or one of the primary ways I should say uh, to understand how a language was pronounced in pre-modern in in, in uh, it, it, before there was a, uh, a any kind of oral tradition or description before there was a, a formal description of the language well, not the oral tradition that that can be variable as well so for example Safiyidic um, Safiyidic has a uh, uh, a glyph it's a hashtag okay and this hashtag glyph corresponds etymologically corresponds to the rod in arabic right so the uh the sod with a dot on it the dotted d now in modern times when you go and take arabic 101 they teach you that this is an emphatic dal dad right this is a very late uh pronunciation um this is not reflected in in siboe siboe for example says that this is a lateral uh, emphatic lateral fricative. Uh, uh, so what does that mean? He he says to put your tongue uh, between your uh, 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 between your molars, for example, and uh, and you know release with emphasis. Huh? Wad wad. So it's an L type of sound. Okay, fine. Uh, now is that the sound that we would get in Safiyidic? Can we assume that for Safiyidic? Well. We would have no idea by just the hashtag. The hashtag has no phonetic information. 
we could assume so, but when Safiric writers decide to write their names in Greek, someone who or a very common name is Radawat, Radawat, right? Coming from the name Rudha, yeah, Radawat in classical Arabic, Radawa. This is a very common name in uh, Safiric. And when they do write it, they decide that the letter in the Greek alphabet that's closest to their lot is a sin, as a S, a sigma. So they must have been pronouncing this lot in a completely different way than anything we have later. And we see it again. There's a big tribal group called Life, right, related to Life in, uh, in, in classical Arabic, and they re write it with a sigma. So using the Greek evidence and then understanding this, the history of this phoneme by looking at other Semitic languages, we can make a hypothesis that Safiyadik probably pronounced this letter as the voiceless version of Sibue's Vod, something like Fod, Fod. Flood, right? So you can see why maybe that could be something pronounced as an S or written with an S. Maybe S is the best approximate of it. But what is clear is that without these bilingual inscriptions, we would just simply have no idea how to pronounce most of these things. And because Safiotic writers, for example, were in contact and were, were, were uh, writing Greek, um, they knew that there, there seems to have been a number of them who knew the Greek language or at least the Greek alphabet, and they produced Greek texts. And this is, and we see that the kind of multilingualism found here is, is actually quite widespread throughout Arabia. We can vocalize Safiyadik with some accuracy, with some confidence. We look at South Arabian, ancient South Arabian, Sabaic. Now, Sabaic is a much bigger corpus than Safiyadik in terms of its in terms of its attestation, linguistic richness. You have monumental inscriptions, very long sentences, all kinds of stuff. But the Sabaeans didn't use Greek ever, not, and so we have no bilingual Greek Sabaic texts. And for that reason, we absolutely have no idea how Sabaic was pronounced. We can make only educated guesses, but we have that we don't have that Rosetta Stone type thing for pronunciation. Now, the same is true for any stage of the language. When we look at Arabic in the seventh century, now the seventh century Arabic, as it, as spoken in, for example, Egypt. That's not something that the Arab grammarians described. We can't assume that what the Arab grammarians described holds for there either, right? So that basic methodology needs to be applied to any um, any period or, or form of the language that doesn't have an, a a clear description associated with it. You see, whether whether middle whether from medieval times or or or, or in the ancient past. Thank you so much for that, Professor, and and thank you for this incredibly informative and rich discussion. I really enjoyed it and I really learned a lot. Uh, before we conclude the episode, I wanted to ask if you had any projects that you're currently working on or anything that you recently completed. Uh, and if you didn't mind just telling us about some of these projects that are in the pipeline. Well, thank you. Yes, it's um, uh, um, uh, it was a real pleasure for me to talk with you uh, about these subjects as well. Uh, so uh, you can uh, you can put a link to my academia.edu page on the uh, on the episode because I put most of my draft articles uh, on academia for that can be downloaded and read for free or discussed. And so people can see what's coming out uh, quickly. Um, also, I, I have a uh, one thing that's not under there is that I, f I finished the um, uh, well, I attempted to decipherment at least. We'll see how well it holds up, but I think it's quite good. Of uh, well, <laughs> the reviewers uh, uh, recommended that it be published, um, uh, so it will appear. I think it, in, it will appear in B. Soas, a, a decipherment of the Thamudic, a variety of the Thamudic ancient Arabian alphabet that was previously not fully understood, only partially deciphered, um, uh, called Thamudic D. And these texts are um, found from as from around Medina 
all the way up to uh, through Hail and Central Arabia up to Taima. Uh, really weird exotic corpus. Um, and so I've uh, uh, completed its decipherment. Unfortunately, uh, most of the inscriptions are amount to bathroom graffiti. Um, sexual boasting and uh, such things, but there was at least there was one text that was an incantation, and so that's that's of a, a, a tremendous use, I think, interest I think to people, and uh, so that's a uh, that that will appear I guess sometime next year. And one other project that I'm I'm doing, I, I think I'm going to share this uh, and and put it, anyone on Twitter will realize that there are hundreds and hundreds of new inscriptions that get posted by amateurs in in Arabia, going around taking photographs and posting them online, and they're they're hard to keep track of, and so I. I have a personal database of all that material um, with who discovered it, when it was found, where it comes from, translation, commentary, any kind of relevant bibliography. And I, I use it for, for my own work, of course. Uh, these things are not published, but it's good for me to keep track of it. And I think I'm going to uh, try to work to make this database public so that anyone can use it as well, because there's all this material is online, but it's impossible to find. And once you do find it, it's impossible to make any sense of it in any, in any systematic way. So I think it'll be a good resource for, uh, uh, for both co our colleagues and, and lay people alike. So look forward to that. Understood. That's, that's you know that's uh, uh, a crowdsourcing at its sense. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. These guys are putting this material out, and I think I can kind of collate it and comment on it, and 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 make it useful to to the scholarly and, and lay public. Uh, and with that, I'd like to thank you again and conclude the episode. Uh, uh, thank you, Professor, for being on. Thank you. My pleasure. Mm -hmm.